And so the Apostle John writes, the elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Well, it is a, a great joy to, to be with you all this weekend. Uh, Ambassador is a church that I love, um, and I've thoroughly enjoyed over the last few years getting to know uh, John a bit better. It, it seems like, you know, what I love about John, it seems like every time I'm with him, he's always reading a, a parenting book. And, uh, you know, I have three boys, and they're kind of wild and, and crazy. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Every time I'm with him, he comes up to me and he says, I think you need this book more than I do, and he, and he hands it to me. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really grateful uh, for that. Yeah, I've, read, I've read those books and have found them uh, very helpful, uh, but I'm, I'm grateful for John and, and helping me with my, my parenting. Uh, but also, it, it, just, it has been a joy uh, over the years to get to know John and know that Ambassador is a, a good church in the region, a like-minded church with uh, the church that I was at in Shanghai and, and now Bangkok. Uh, Ambassador is a church that we pray for uh, regularly. And so we're thankful to know that you guys are here in Hong Kong. Well, it's, uh, it's not too difficult to think of influential Christians throughout uh, the course of history. Uh, we can just you know, start with the Apostle Paul. He's a man who, who traveled all over. He established numerous churches. He stood trials for advancing the gospel. He wrote numerous letters that are now a part of our Bibles or we can think of the, the North African theologian, Augustine. After his conversion in 387, he became one of the most influential Christians in all individuals in all of Christianity. He wrote The City of God. He wrote Confessions. These are works that are still being read 1,500 years later. His theological formulations still hold great weight for both Protestants and Catholics. We can think of John Wycliffe, who argued in the 14th century that People should be able to read the Bible in their own language. And he worked on translating the Bible into English. Maybe uh, less well-known to, to this group is uh, a man named Dan Beach Bradley, who's quite influential in, in Thailand. He was a missionary to Thailand in the 1800s. He, he brought over the first Thai printing press. He published a, a Thai dictionary. He introduced modern medicine. He translated the Old Testament into Thai. And it was actually said of Bradley that this was a man that was constantly found singing hymns and reading the Bible and praying. And we could just go on listing uh, influential believers who have had great success in their various spheres. And I think when we hear about people like this, we're often simultaneously uh, awed and intimidated. Right? On the one hand, we're amazed at what God has accomplished through His people. But on the, hand, on the other hand, we look at our own life and we wonder sometimes if we're really contributing to God's mission in the world. I mean, is it even possible to make significant contributions without greater resources, without intellectual superiority, without more people? Is it possible for you and me to make a dent in God's plans in the world? Well, today I want to look at 3 John, which I think gives us a glimpse into the life of someone that the Apostle John was compelled to encourage, even though his 
contributions may not have seemed as impressive as Paul's or Augustine's or even Dan Beach Bradley's. And yet what we see in 3 John is the God-glorifying goodness of a man living in relative obscurity and yet faithful before God. He's faithful because of a simple yet intentional commitment to love and truth in his local church. So you can look with me at, at 3 John, and you can scan through this letter a bit and, and uh, uh, kind of get an idea of the themes that are going on here. 3 John is actually the shortest letter in the New Testament. So sometimes people will ask, you know, what book of the Bible uh, would you choose if you could only read one for the rest of your life? Well, uh, I'm pretty sure 3 John is, is not on anybody's list. It, it's, it's probably at the bottom of everybody's list. In fact, if you read through this letter, you'll notice that uh, it's a letter that doesn't even mention Jesus at all. Uh, the Holy Spirit is also not mentioned. And we don't know much about the recipient of this letter, Gaius. All we know about him is what John tells us in this letter, which really isn't much. We really don't know what occasion this letter it was written by John, probably around the same time that he wrote 1st and 2nd John, which would have been our towards the end of the first century. He was likely very old, advanced in age at this point. Presumably, he was in Ephesus at the time of writing, and the various churches in the regions must have been facing some challenges because John's letters indicate that some people had left the church, they were embracing some kind of heresy, and they were trying to convince the other Christians who were still in the church to embrace it with them. And that's pretty much all we know about 3 John. But I think the situation that Gaius and others faced is not all that different from the one that, that we face today, which is the need to hold fast to the truth in the face of wrong teaching and challenges. And what we find in this little letter is an influential apostle like John taking the time to write to and encourage a little-known church member named Gaius. This is a man who is unknown to us, but he served faithfully for God's glory. And he was a friend of John. He's a man that John loved dearly. I think you get a sense of John's love for Gaius in the first four verses of this letter. So I want to focus this morning on just these first four verses and consider together what we learn from the Christian love that is on display between these two brothers in Christ. So I want to make three points this morning from these verses uh, here's point number one. We should love for the sake of the truth. Love for the sake of the truth. We really see this in verse 1. Look again at verse 1. John writes, The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. You know, we often think that there is a tension between love and truth. So in John Gray's best-selling book, which is now very dated, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, Gray suggests men are more concerned about problem-solving and truth-telling, while women are concerned about empathy and relationships. And he notices a, a divide there in those relationships between truth and love. And another person observes that, that truth and love seem to exclude each other. Right? If you want to show love, you may need to ease up a bit on the truth. Love is something that's soft. 
It conforms to the person that you're bestowing it on. Real love, it is said, it is thought, accepts people entirely for who and what they claim to be. But truth, well, that's something that can be hard and aggressive. If you don't really love someone, well, only then can you tell them what you really think about them. I think we tend to form these two categories in our mind. There are people who care about the truth, and there are people who care about love. And we even, I think, apply that to churches. We see that division of love and truth between churches. There are love-oriented churches, and then there are truth-oriented churches. And truth-oriented churches major in doctrine and preaching and boundaries, and love-oriented churches stress inclusion and fellowship and giving to the poor. But notice in verse 1 that John keeps love and truth together. He doesn't separate love and truth at all. I mean, you can see the depth of his love in the way that he addresses Gaius here. In the NIV, John calls him his dear friend, but the Greek word that John uses is actually stronger than that. It's closer to how the ESV translates it, beloved, to my beloved Gaius. When was the last time you used that word? When was the last time you called somebody your beloved? And these two brothers in Christ share a deep love for one another. But if John's love for Gaius is emphasized, truth is no less so. Notice the article in front of truth. He loves him in the truth. And he uses that phrase again in verses 3 and 4 when he says that, that Gaius is faithful to the truth, that he walks in the truth. The truth that John mentions here is it's not some subjective reality like I think how we sometimes use it. You might hear someone say, you know, uh, speak your truth as if truth changes from person to person. Well, this right here, this is the truth. John is talking about an absolute truth here. It's a truth with a capital T, something that Gaius is faithful to and continuously walks in even when it costs him. So what does John mean here when he is talking about the truth? What does he mean when he says that he loves Gaius in the truth? I think we can clearly see what John means by looking at his own explanation for how truth and love work together. So I want you to take your Bibles and just turn backwards to 1 John, just briefly. 1 John 3, 16 and 18. So this is what John says. Verse 16 of chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So according to John, Jesus shows us what true love is. He laid down his life for sinners. And because of this truth, we similarly should lay down our lives. For our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we love like that, we love not merely with word or talk, but with actions and in truth. So what does John mean by the truth? Well, he means that he loves Gaius with a love that is grounded in what God has done for sinners in Christ. John loves Gaius in the way that God has loved us in Christ. Right, we know that God is holy and He's perfect. He made us to know Him, and yet we sinned against Him. We became His enemies. 
Our sin separated us from His loving presence and it placed us under His wrath. And yet, in mercy and grace, God the Son became man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sinners, and was placed underneath the wrath of God. And yet three days later, he rose again, defeating sin and death, so that now anybody who repents of their sins and trusts in him can be restored back to God. And God did all of this for sinners, even though our sins has always been primarily against him. And it's this truth that John says grounds his love for Gaius. What God has done for us in Christ motivates and enlivens John's love. And many people seem to think that true love is spontaneous. Real love, some think, is purest when it springs from an overwhelming feeling deep inside of us that causes us to act. But is that really the, the best way to think about love? Because what happens when we lose those overwhelming feelings? What happens when we don't feel like loving someone. I think that's a definition of love that's really on flimsy ground. Much better is a love that's rooted in something real and true. True love is more like what marriage vows are meant to aspire to. Right? A couple's marriage vows are meant to motivate and spur them on even when things get hard in both sickness and in health. Even when feelings may not be there for a season, they're to continue to love. And John's love for Gaius is similarly built on a stronger foundation than mere spontaneity and feelings. He loves Gaius because of what God has done for both in Christ. He loves him in the way that God has loved us in Christ. He loves him in the truth. It's a secure love. It's a committed love built on their mutual salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of love that we are meant to have for one another. You know, we can all think of people that we love. I mean, just picture in your mind right now the people that you love. You're going to be thinking about your parents. You're going to be thinking about your children. Right? We love our friends. We typically love people who agree with us, who are like us, and who benefit us in some way. Christian, is there anyone that you love purely for the sake of the gospel? Purely for the sake of Jesus? For the sake of the truth? You know, in the church, we don't get to pick and choose who we love. We can't love people merely because we like them. And we can't avoid loving people who are different from us or who are awkward or difficult in some way. The church is not the place to find people that we would naturally want to love. Instead, the church is a gathering of our brothers and sisters in Christ, people that God has saved, which means we don't choose them. God chooses them, just as He has chosen us. Mark Dever says, We are a cooperative society of garbage takers. We all produce a lot of garbage. That is the nature of fallen creatures. And in a Christian church, we volunteer to take one another's garbage because God has taken our garbage. God in Christ has loved us even though we were not attracted to Him in our sin. 
And so that is what we do for one another in the church. We love even the people the world calls unattractive and undesirable. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love one another in the truth, which means we love one another not because of a person's loveliness or because of how they might benefit us in some way, but because of the truth, for the sake of the truth. You know, if you've been a member of, of this church for long, you've likely felt misunderstood or left out at times. And when you look around this room, you probably know a bit about one another's strengths and quirks. The kind of Christian love that we're called to leans into fellowship with these people, even when it would be easier to seek fellowship somewhere else. You know, as the years go on, this church is likely going to grow. It's likely going to change. There are going to be changes from time to time. And it's important that we as believers don't hold on to an idealized version of Ambassador International Church, but instead trust that God knows what He's doing as He adds brothers and sisters to our lives. We don't want to create little groups within a growing and, and changing church. And we also want to make... Church, simply a place that we come to, never, never really investing, never really building real, deep, loving relationships. Instead, we want to seek to love all of those that God brings to us because of what God has done for us, the way that God has loved us in Christ. And so, Christian, you must commit yourself to God's people. You must commit yourself to the church, to this church, to one another, you share meals, you meet needs, you look for those members on Sundays that are sitting alone and you go sit next to them. In other words, you must be a family. You must love in the truth. This is how we love brothers and sisters in the truth and so honor God. So we see here that we should love for the sake of the truth. We also see from these verses, though, point two, that love... Praise for the well-being of others. It prays for the well-being of others, both body and soul. So look again at verse 2. John says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. well this verse has become a favorite for Pentecostal and charismatic believers because of what they think it says about physical, and material prosperity. Uh, a good example of this is that of Oral Roberts, the charismatic preacher in the 20th century. This verse actually played a pivotal role in his life, but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, he took this verse to be saying that God desired not simply spiritual prosperity, but prosperity in every respect. So here's how one Roberts biographer put it. He wrote this. He said, Oral had rushed out of his house one morning to catch the bus to class when he realized he had not read his Bible, as was his custom. He returned, hastily grabbed his Bible, opened it at random, and read 3 John verse 2. Now, he had read his New Testament, he reported, at least a hundred times, but this verse seemed brand new. He called his wife Evelyn and read it to her. They had been nurtured in a belief system that insisted you had to be poor to be a Christian. And they talked excitedly about the, this verse's implications. Did it mean they could have a new car, a new house, a brand new ministry? 
Well, it was 3 John verse 2 that led Roberts to pursue a worldwide healing ministry. And today, this verse is famous among those who hold to prosperity theology or the health and wealth gospel. But verse 2 is not promising health and wealth and prosperity at all. Instead, John is simply telling Gaius how he has been praying for him. Notice the emphasis on this verse is actually on the state of Gaius's soul. As one person observes, John prays that Gaius's physical health would keep up with his spiritual health. Now, we live in an era when much time and money and effort is spent on our physical health. So it's maybe worth asking for all of us, are we as concerned about our spiritual health? The model that we see here teaches us that we should be concerned about our spiritual health even as we pray that our physical health might catch up. So church, in your prayer services, you really should put into practice what you see here. Yes, pray for one another's needs and burdens, even as you make sure you do not forget the far more important spiritual implications of those things. But we should make John's prayer our model as we pray through our membership directories. We pray for good health for church members, for clean doctor reports, for safe surgeries. We pray for safe travel, successful job interviews, help in parenting, and all the other things that regularly come up. And yet, at the same time, we should pray that God will help us trust in Him more and depend on Him more. We pray that our love for Him and others would increase. We pray that we would enjoy greater discipline in evangelism. We not only pray that our kids will be successful in school, but that most importantly, they will grow up to love Jesus and cultivate godly character. Friends, this is how Christians pray. Yes, for health, but most importantly, the health of our souls. Let me just consider the song that sometimes we like to sing. I'm sure you guys sing it at Ambassador. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or... When sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. If the Lord should descend, or if Satan strikes or trials come, even so, it is well with my soul. Friends, we pray like this. We pray like John. Because we believe that no matter what comes our way, no matter what sorrows or trials or difficulties come our way, our souls are safe with Jesus. We pray like John because we know that no matter what happens to our physical bodies, the Lord has promised our souls safe passage. And do note from verse 2, something that, that should be obvious, Christians pray for one another. Do you pray for one another? Is it part of your habit and practice to pray for your fellow church members? When John says that he prays for Gaius, I, I believe him. I think he's telling the truth. Prayer for one another must be a regular part of the Christian life. It's why maybe the most important service outside the Sunday morning gathering is whenever your church gathers to pray. And so I just want to exhort you, don't neglect those sweet times of fellowship and prayer. And then brothers and sisters, as we pray for one another in prayer meetings or privately, Let's be sure to tell one another. 
I encourage my church to keep their membership directories in their Bible. Every day, pray for a few members and then send an email off letting those members know that you prayed for them that day. I mean, don't you think it was encouraging to Gaius to hear that John prayed for him in this way? I mean, isn't it encouraging to be reminded that we can trust our whole selves, both body and soul, to God, and that no matter what is battering our bodies, our souls are getting along well in Christ? Brothers and sisters, let us love one another by being a church that prays for one another in both body and soul. So we are to love for the sake of the truth, and then we love by praying for the well-being of others. Finally, love rejoices in the faithfulness of others. Love rejoices in the faithfulness of others. Look again at verses 3 and 4. John says, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So here's this phrase, the truth again. Gaius lives according to the truth. He's faithful to it. He walks in it. Now again, this phrase is specifically talking about the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for sinners. We've rebelled against God. We deserve death and judgment, but God mercifully has not left us in our sin. Jesus took our sin and punishment upon Himself. He died in our place. He rose again, and we now live lives of repentance and trust. Gaius not only believes this truth, but he walks in it. He believes the gospel, and he lives it out. He lives a life characterized by repentance and trust in God. Now notice that this message so affects his life that it can be seen by others. According to verse 3, believers testified to John about Gaius' faithfulness to the truth. His faithfulness was evident to other people. And the result for John when he heard this was a wellspring of joy in his heart. He says that his greatest joy is to hear that his children, his disciples, are walking in the truth. I'm struck. I'm struck by how easy it is for John to find joy. Right? John doesn't need money to find joy. John doesn't need fancy vacations to find joy. All he needs to find joy is to hear about another brother or sister in Christ walking faithfully in the Lord. Does such faithful living by others bring you joy too? I, mean, I think we catch glimpses of this joy. It doesn't it encourage you? doesn't it encourage your faith each Sunday or even this morning to hear a, uh, your fellow believers sing to the Lord? Maybe especially when you see a sister in Christ and you know that she's going through something challenging and difficult and yet you look at her and she's She's singing praises to the Lord. That encourages our hearts. I recently heard a story of someone who became a Christian actually in Shanghai. And this lady in her baptismal story, she said that her co-worker shared the gospel with her and her initial reaction was a desire to end the friendship. She, she didn't want to be friends with someone who believed the kinds of things that this Christian was saying. But she kept listening. And eventually she became a Christian. And doesn't it 
doesn't it encourage your heart to hear about this guy's faithfulness to keep sharing the gospel, even when it might have cost him a friendship? Well, notice in 3 John that John doesn't hesitate to write to Gaius about how Gaius's faithfulness brings him joy. Have you ever been praised by someone you respected? Or have you ever seen a, a child respond to the positive praise of his parents? I was, uh, a few weeks ago, I took my oldest son Samuel with me to church early on Sunday morning. And usually I get there early to read through my sermon manuscript and pray through it. I'm, I'm kind of there to work. But for whatever reason, I brought Samuel with me and I took him into the playroom and I just sat down with him. It's just not something I normally do. Uh, and he knew that I needed to be you know, praying and working through my sermon manuscript. And so he looked at me and he said, Daddy, don't you need to go, don't you need to go work? And I don't know why I said this. I, I, to my shame, I don't necessarily do this very well often. But I just looked at him and said, I just like spending time with you. And he got the biggest smile on his face. I mean, so, so much so that it, it sticks in my mind how a simple sentence like that brought him so much joy. I think the same is true for all of us. Often a timely word of encouragement goes much further in stirring people to faithfulness than a word of rebuke. I mean, you can imagine how John's words here must have spurred Gaius on to even greater faithfulness, to hear that his mentor was overjoyed and how he was living. Brothers and sisters, we want to be the kind of people who rejoice in the faithfulness of others. Or as one person wrote, good men will rejoice in the soul prosperity of others and are glad to hear of the grace and goodness of others. You know, we should look for evidence of God's grace in one another's lives, and we should praise God when we see it, and we should even point evidence of grace out in each other's lives. Is that something that you have a habit of doing? When you see someone serving the Lord, when you see someone persevering in their faith through a challenge, when you see someone doing, you know, being faithful, reading Scripture, praying, do you ever point out to them I'm so encouraged by your faithfulness. You know, in a world where people pick others apart on social media and they seem better at critiquing one another over differences, it's actually going to be, I think, our gracious words, those that build people up, that are going to stand out to people. And by the way, rejoicing in the faithfulness of others it doesn't mean that we only rejoice with others insofar as they agree with us on all matters. So remember here in this passage, the truth is specifically referring to the gospel message. We rejoice in others insofar as they are faithful to the gospel. And that doesn't mean that we have to be in complete agreement on everything in order to rejoice in the faithfulness of others. Michael Reeves has written that the gospel serves as our mooring anchor. An anchor stops a ship from drifting while allowing it a, a certain amount of movement on the surface of the water. And just so, Michael Reeves says, the gospel holds us to Scripture's matters of first importance while allowing some slack for differences of opinion on other matters. So with the gospel as our anchor, evangelicals are able to see that not every issue is a gospel issue. And not every error or departure from our view or practice is a soul-killing heresy. Friends, what Michael Reeves is getting at is that we can rejoice 
that, that brothers and sisters are faithful to the gospel even when we don't agree with them on every matter. Because we do agree on the most important thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel holds such weight that we can even rejoice in the faithfulness of others without always qualifying our praise by mentioning our disagreements. You ever see that? Maybe on social media, or maybe you're guilty of this, where you're going to praise somebody, but you, got, you feel like you've got to say, I don't agree with this person on everything, but we always try to qualify our disagreements, our praise. But this is actually why we can pray week in and week out for other gospel-preaching churches in Hong Kong and even rejoice when good things are being done in those churches. My prayer is that this church, Ambassador, is that you are quick to rejoice in others for their faithfulness and slow to critique on secondary and tertiary issues. I think Charles Spurgeon was a good example of this. Just consider Charles Spurgeon's views of John Wesley. We know Spurgeon was a Calvinist. He abhorred Wesley's Arminianism, and yet he refused to write Wesley off. So listen to Spurgeon's stern words for fellow Calvinists who tried to vilify Wesley. They tried to just write him off as an enemy. Spurgeon said, To ultra Calvinists, Wesley's name is as abhorrent as the name of the Pope to a Protestant. You have only to speak of Wesley and every imaginable evil is conjured up before their eyes and no doom is thought to be sufficiently horrible for such an arch heretic as he was. I verily believe that there are some who would be glad to rake up his bones from the tomb and burn them as they did the bones of Wycliffe of old. Men who go so high in doctrine and yet add so much bitterness and uncharitableness to it that they cannot imagine that a man can fear God at all unless he believes precisely as they do. I don't want to belabor this point, but uh, these quotes, I think, are really good. So Charles Spurgeon also had disagreements with George Herbert on the doctrine of the church. But listen to what Spurgeon said about George Herbert. He said, where the Spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ constrains me to no more think of him as a stranger or foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Now, I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan. But I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert for my very soul, and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as George Herbert did, and I do not ask myself whether I should love him or not. There is no room for question, for I cannot help myself. Unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ, I cannot cease loving those who love Him. I will challenge you, if you have any love to Jesus Christ, just try to pick or choose among His people. See, Spurgeon had the gospel as his anchor, and as a result, he was able to rejoice in the faithfulness of others, even when he didn't see eye to eye with them on every detail. Now, brothers and sisters, I know Ambassador stands upon a a strong statement of faith, and that is good and that is right, and may you as a church rejoice in one another as you persevere in it, but let us also rejoice in the faithfulness of all those who hold to the truth of the gospel, that which is of first importance, namely that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and may we rejoice even in the face of secondary differences, which by the way are going to come up sometimes in the church too, parenting differences, 
different philosophies regarding work, life, balance. We should seek to love one another in the truth because of what the Lord has done. Well, these first few verses of John's letter teach us that we must keep love and truth together. Within Christianity, they are intimately related. If we proclaim the truth without living lives that demonstrate love, we'll find that people will reject the truth. On the other hand, no matter how loving we appear, it is only the truth of what God has done for sinners in Christ that can save. And without truth, people's lives will continue on towards destruction. So the truth is we are created by a holy God. We've sinned against Him. We're under His judgment. And our only hope is found in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sinners and rose from the dead. And if you would be saved, you must turn from your sin and trust in in Jesus. That's the truth. For those of us who have embraced this truth, we must now live it out in love towards others. We love in the way that God has loved us in Christ. We love for the sake of the truth by praying for the well-being of others and rejoicing in their faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you and we thank you for the salvation that you have given to us in Christ. Lord, we know that we were the offending party. We sinned against you. And yet in love, you acted to save us. Lord, we pray now that we would model love towards one another, the love that we've been given. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in the faithfulness of others, even pointing out evidence of grace in their lives. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to love in the truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.